Well, good morning. It's lovely to have the rain, even lovely to have the word of God. Let's, let's pray so that you would know that there is none like me in all the earth. We pray, our gracious Father, our Lord of Lords, that you would help us grasp today that there is none like you and that we would live lives of worship on reflection of that powerful truth. Amen. Who is the Lord? Or as we learned a couple of weeks ago, who is Yahweh? Uh, that's the name God gives himself in Exodus chapter 3 from the burning bush, which our translation uh, spells out consistently through the Bible in that very odd way with that Lord in all capitals with small caps for O-R-D. Every time you see that word in the Old Testament, that's God's name Yahweh in the text and they couldn't bring themselves to, to translate it as that. But it means I am who I am. Who is this Yahweh, the Lord? That's the question that keeps coming up in the book of Exodus. Uh, last week, Pharaoh posed that very question. Uh, Pharaoh responded to Moses, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? I don't know the Lord. I will not let them go. And you can hear the sneer in his tone as he asks that. Who is this Yahweh? Who is this unknown tin pot godlet that my slaves say that they serve? Who is this God to come to me, the Pharaoh, who is God and King, the most powerful man who walks the face of the earth? Why should I listen to him? Well, that's where Pharaoh begins, but it's not where he ends by the end of the plagues that we're looking at today. Uh, we're seeing nine rounds of an epic ten-round battle, followed by one final round we'll come to next week, the killer blow of death. They're known as the ten plagues of Egypt, but they're not all diseases, they're, they're catastrophes. Uh, for those of us who grew up in Sunday school, uh, we might remember them with great fondness, as David mentioned, uh, we're making craft frogs like this, and uh, uh, colouring in red rivers in our colouring in. If, if you are a hip grandparent, you might have shown your grandchildren uh, the Lego Bible online where they've made it all in Lego. Uh, good fun. But, but we mustn't let those fun memories and fond memories cloud our minds about the reality of what happened, what God did in the land of Egypt. Think of the horrors of the bushfires a couple of years ago. Uh, or the Picton floods, and you'll be closer to the mark. Uh, but that was on a far grander scale than what happened. That was just a localised area, wasn't it, down here? Uh, and horrific as it was, this was the whole nation. And it wasn't just one or two disasters which are bad enough. This was one disaster after another. Ten catastrophes. Over a period of less than two months, these happened. It wasn't over a long period of time. This is 40, 50 days, depending on how you count, which absolutely devastated the world's biggest superpower of the time, economically, socially, spiritually, and brought them to their knees in a way that would be talked about in the ancient world for hundreds of years afterwards. Ten cataclysmic displays of Yahweh's supreme power. Why did he do it this way? If his purpose was just to rescue the Israelites from captivity, he could have done it all in one fell swoop, just snapped his fingers and 
wiped out Egypt like he did with Sodom and Gomorrah back in Genesis. Uh, I mean, in chapter, 15, uh, chapter 9, verse 15, uh, God says as much to Pharaoh, By now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague, and you would have been obliterated from the whole earth. Who do you think you're toying with? One quick, swift, efficient blow that would have put an end to it and had the house of Israel skipping down the road without any problems whatsoever. But that's not how God does it. And in the very next breath, God explains his reason for doing it this way. However, I have let you live for this purpose, to show you my power and to make my name known on the whole earth. God brought the plagues to Egypt so that everyone would know him. Pharaoh, his officials, the Israelites, the other nations around, that we would know him. Yahweh, I am who I am. And that's what God wants from us today as we look at the plagues, to lift our eyes from all of the distractions which compete with him for our attention and the alternatives which call for our devotion and to see him as he really is, the God of extraordinary, unmatched, awesome power. There is none like him anywhere. Who is this God, Pharaoh asked? Well, he's about to find out. Uh, Moses returns somewhat reluctantly. God's pushing him. He's making up the same old excuses. He comes into Pharaoh's court, makes the same demand, let my people go. There's a showdown with the magicians who we meet for the first time and they have a, a staff to snake off uh, and, uh, and uh, they can do the same tricks that God's given Moses to do but his is better because his snake eats theirs. But then begins the ten plagues. Now as we go through them, you might be tempted like many others, to try and just explain them away as unfortunate phenomenon that all happened around the same time or maybe something happened that triggered one thing that triggered the next thing. Uh, a friend of mine who's a geologist uh, and not a Christian at all uh, has tried to make it all fit with a volcano going off in the Mediterranean uh, and uh, that might have poured minerals into the Nile which turned it a bit red uh, and uh, that would explain the darkness from all the ash. Um, others suggest seasonal floods dredged up red silt which drove the frogs onto land and on it goes. But it's all grasping at straws when you read them. While God certainly uses the force of nature to do his bidding, uh, there really is no purely naturalistic explanation for these disasters for several reasons, because they increase in intensity because they only happen when Moses speaks, because they stop as soon as he prays. Because there's a discrimination between the peoples in the land, between the Egyptians and the Israelites, as we'll see. And, and because of the way it's a systematic dismantling of Egypt. This is God displaying his invincible power on command to show that he is the Lord. Uh, let's run through the plagues, shall we? Plague number one, chapter 7 and verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. 
Go to Pharaoh in the morning. When you see him walking out to the water, stand ready to meet him by the bank of the Nile. Take in your hand the staff that turned into a snake. Tell him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to tell you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But so far you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. Here is how you will know that I am the Lord. Watch, I'm about to strike the water in the Nile with a staff in my hand and it will turn to blood. The fish in the Nile will die, the river will stink, then the Egyptians will be unable to drink water from it. And so it happens. As you know, the Nile is one of the mightiest rivers in the world. It's 6,650 kilometres long. It is longer than Australia is wide. And it all turned to blood, not blood red, blood. They knew the difference between certain red stuff and what blood was like. And there's a fish kill on a scale never seen before or since. I don't know if you can imagine the stench of decaying millions of fish mixed with the iron scent of blood. Just stinking up the whole country. For seven days it lasted. In, in verse 22, Pharaoh's court magicians, they come out and they turn staves into snakes, but they try and do the same thing. They somehow manage a poor imitation by their secret art. So we're not told how they pulled it off, and particularly since there's no good water left to work with, but they had some trick up their sleeves. And as a result, Pharaoh ignores Moses. All they had to do was convince him some other power than Moses' God could pull this off. And he didn't want to be convinced that God was God anyway, so they had him on their side. And so comes plague number two, chapter 8 and verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and tell him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. But if you refuse to let them go, then I'll plague all your territory with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs. They will come up and go out into your palace, into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your officials and your people, and into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. The frogs will come up on you, your people, and all your officials. Now, when I read that on Tuesday, my mind went back to uh, the farm stay that our family went on earlier this year. Uh, the outdoor toilet that you had to use wasn't flushing, and so I lifted the lid on the cistern, and uh, it was filled with frogs. I mean, that gave me a bit of a jump. But that's nothing compared to what happened in Egypt. I mean, you open your oven and frogs come pouring out. They're there in your kneading bowls. So that means they're in the cupboards. They're, they're everywhere. They, you could, everywhere you could see in the house and garden, seething with a mass of green and brown. You couldn't take a step without squelching and slipping in your house or outside. Horrible. The magicians somehow managed to make a frog or two appear with their secret arts in verse 7, which is enough to convince Pharaoh because he didn't want to believe anyway. But unlike the first plague, he did call for Moses and Aaron in verse 8 and say, Appeal to the Lord to remove the frogs from me and my people. Then I will let the people go and they can sacrifice to the Lord. So it looks like his resolve's weakening. 
Moses asked him, when would you like the frogs to go? Give me, a, give me a time and a date. And he says, tomorrow. And tomorrow it is. And look at the result in verse 13. The Lord did, as Moses had said, the frogs in the houses, courtyards and fields died. And they piled them in countless heaps. And there was a terrible odour in the land. I mean, the river already stank. Now imagine the stench of millions of rotting frogs in, on the land. But when Pharaoh saw there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Plague number three, our Bibles translate as a plague of gnats. Uh, but it could be sand fleas or mosquitoes or even lice. The word means small biting insects. Imagine a plague of sand fleas. Oh, you know, the, a plague of lice. Um, Aaron stretched out his hand, verse 17 of chapter 8, with his staff. And when he struck the dust of the land, gnats were on people and animals. All the dust of the land became gnats throughout the land of Egypt. Imagine how horrible that would be. Just like a dust storm, only it's insects, the air thick with them, biting, scratching, in your clothes, everywhere. You can't get away. And for the first time, the magicians try to pull off something similar with their secret arts, but they can't do it. You can't look at the conclusion they come to in verse 19 of chapter 8. This is the finger of God, the magician said to Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen to them. In fact, the magicians are not even going to try again for the rest of the plagues. They're done. They know who Yahweh is. And so plague four begins, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, present yourself to Pharaoh when you see him going out to the water. Tell him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. But if you will not let my people go, then I'll send swarms of flies against you, your officials, your people and your houses. The Egyptians' houses will swarm with flies and so will the land where they live. I mean, this is going to be worse than an Aussie barbecue down by the George's River. Right? That, they're bad, but flies are going to be everywhere. Right? A hat with corks isn't going to solve this problem. It's, they're going to cover the ground and walls. They're going to be all over everyone's backs like a carpet. There. But, but this time, there's going to be a clear difference in how God acts. It's in verse 22. And on that day, I will give special treatment to the land of Goshen where my people are living. No flies will be there. This way you will know that I, the Lord, Yahweh, am in the land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will take place tomorrow. The Israelite slaves weren't scattered evenly over the whole land. They were up building all the store cities, you remember, up in the land of Goshen, uh, that is, they're just in this little secluded area where they live. And it's as if a force field goes up around Goshen and there's no flies there. Uh, this isn't natural. The flies are so bad, Pharaoh begs Moses to make it stop. He tries to make a deal with Moses in verse 28. Pharaoh responded, I'll let you go and sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, but don't go very far, right? You can go, but not just, just over there. Make an appeal for me. 
It's still not what God had demanded, but, it, but each time it's one step closer. But will Pharaoh follow through when the flies go away? No chance. Verse 32, Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. And on it goes through the next few chapters, plague after plague, each one more devastating than the last. Each time Pharaoh tries to cut a new deal with Moses, uh, each time getting closer and closer to what God had demanded. Moses calls on God to make the plague stop, and it does, but Pharaoh will go back on his word each time. Plague number five, I think we're up to. Uh, The disease wipes out the entire livestock of Egypt. Horses, donkeys, cattle, camels and sheep. That means there's no more meat. There was already no more fish. No more meat, no more transport. That's gone. All dead across the land, except in Goshen. The sixth plague, festering boils break out on everyone, except those living in the land of Goshen. It's noted that even the magicians in Pharaoh's court uh, have them over their bodies and could not even stand up because they were in so much pain. Just imagine a whole population writhing in agony, cannot get out of bed because of, you know, a massive case of chicken pox or worse. You know, this, this is horrible stuff. The seventh plague, a hailstorm which wipes out the entirety of the food crops of Egypt devastating what's left of their food supply. They've already lost the fish, they've lost the meat, now they can't even be vegetarian. That's a sad state of affairs. (laughs) The eighth plague, a locust swarm, far worse than ever before or since in the world. Chapter 10, verse 15, they covered the surface of the whole land so the land was black and they consumed all the plants on the ground and all the fruit on the trees that the hail had left. Nothing green was left on the trees or the plants in the field throughout the land of Egypt. This is a nation that has been turned into a barren wasteland. There is nothing left. And if it couldn't get any worse, plague 9, verse 21, chapter 10, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven and there will be a darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. Three whole days at last. Imagine a darkness that you could feel. I wonder what it would feel like. The clammy hands of death crawling over you. This isn't an ash cloud covering the Middle East because in Goshen the light shines. This is a blackness specifically over Egypt with a hole in the middle of it where this glorious sunshine comes through. But not even that will change Pharaoh's hard heart. It will take one more devastating and personal blow to finally humble him and break him, which we'll come to next week. So that's the plagues. Not the fun family story you might remember. Ten disasters which systematically dismantled the superpower of Egypt. Forty or fifty days it took, depending on how you count the day or two in between them bringing complete devastation. I mean, think about it. Gone is their entire food supply. 
This is the nation that once supplied the rest of the world and saved the rest of the world in times of famine. It's got nothing left. The fish stocks have been... You know how long it takes to repopulate the fish stocks in a river, even in Parramatta River. It's just 50, 60, 70 years. Gone is their reputation amongst the other nations, as we discover later in the Bible. Everyone's laughing at Egypt. Gone is their economic productivity for the future. They've got nothing left to begin again with. They are devastated economically. But they've also been devastated spiritually. Uh, And that really struck me this week, the spiritual devastation. In chapter 12 and verse 12, We'll see it next week. But God says in the lead up to the final plague on the firstborn, I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. It's not just against Pharaoh and the people. It's against the gods of Egypt. It turns out in Ezekiel that uh, he talks about when they were in Egypt that the Israelites were worshipping the Egyptian gods rather than Yahweh. And God was going to execute his judgment on these gods. And that's what's been happening. The Egyptians had a myriad of gods over every sphere of life that you can imagine, hundreds of them if you look up the lists. Uh, But it was said of the River Nile that it was the blood of Osiris. That's what it was described as. Uh, Who's the god of growth and life. Well, look what the real god, Yahweh, did to the Nile. God turned Osiris' blood, which was supposed to bring life, into a bloodbath of death. Hemet was the goddess of fertility. Uh, she was represented as a woman with a frog's head. Uh, she, pretty yeah, cute. Anyway, uh, but then there lay the stinking piles of millions of dead frogs that they'd raked up. Hathor, the goddess of love and women and productivity, was represented as a cow. Uh, The livestock are all dead. Nut, the queen of the sky, who is the one who would bring goodness and send it to bring life. But Yahweh rains down hail, destroying everything. Isis is the protector of crops. Uh, She failed miserably. The locusts ravaged everything that was left after the hail. And the head of all the gods of Egypt, anyone know who that was? Ra. Ra the sun god. He was shown to be nothing by the ninth plague. Now, they're not mentioned in here, and so it's a little bit speculated, but but Yahweh is just blotting out the gods of Egypt, destroying all their confidence one by one. He executed his judgment on all of them, as he said, that you would know that there is none like me in all the earth. And even the officials in the magicians of Pharaoh's court with their secret powers who can do amazing things by whether it's demonic power or trickery, we don't know. Even they say this is the finger of the real God. But what about Pharaoh? Even now after the ninth plague, Pharaoh's heart is still hard. It's like rock hard granite. There's been signs of it weakening as he's offered greater and greater deals to Moses to make it all stop. But the reality is he's not interested in knowing God or giving up his power, letting his workforce go. And so each time when relief comes, 
He's unmoved. Maybe that's like people that you know. Uh, I couldn't help but think of different situations. It's very common, isn't it? When a crisis is on, even our nation will cry out to God. Or offer prayers for the bushfires and the, the floods. Look to the churches for relief. But when the answer comes and things are better, we just go back. There's no true repentance. There's no change. There's no lasting thankfulness to God. Once the problem's gone, God can get back in his hole. That's what a hard heart is like. Don't be like that. But that leads to something very confronting that we need to come to terms with in this whole situation that runs right through this section. You see, there's a fundamental reason given why Pharaoh's heart is so hard. And that reason is because God made it hard. Even before the plagues began, God told Moses that's what he would do from our reading in chapter 7, verse 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. And that's exactly what happens. It's not just that Pharaoh's heart was hard. God made Pharaoh's heart hard. And it's explicitly spelled out right through the section. I put the references where it says that's the case on the outline there. But here's just one of them. Chapter 9, verse 12. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not listen to them as the Lord had told Moses. And Romans 9, our second reading, highlights that. That's, that's the lesson it draws out of here, that it was God who hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not listen. That may be very uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable truth, isn't it? But it's not unclear. The scriptures are consistent and God makes no bones about doing it. Exodus is written so that all may know God. Well, this is who he is. The God who is sovereignly in control of all things. Nature, disasters, and even human hearts. Do you know him? This is Yahweh. This is the great I am. And I, and I want to draw out four implications of knowing this sovereign God. If you know him, that, then there's four things that come out of that, that. That are both uncomfortable but also incredibly comforting. The first implication is... God is unstoppable. Through the plagues, through the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, God is showing us he is completely sovereign over the lives of people and not even the most powerful man in the world is above him. Our lives are completely in his hands. He is sovereign over the forces of this world, over nature, disasters. He, he even demonstrates that with terrible ferocity through these plagues. He's sovereign over the so-called gods of this world. They are pretenders. He is the reality. But he's also sovereign over hearts, minds and the will of people. If it were not so, then we would be gods and not him. If our will mattered more than his will. We would be the gods. That may be what we want, but it's not the case. It may be an affront to our pride. But I tell you, God's complete sovereignty is a tremendous confidence builder if you know him because 
It means nothing and nobody can get in his way. It means you, you can totally bank on his promises when he makes them because nothing can stop them coming about because he will bring them about. Nothing is above him. That makes him unstoppable. So when God says in Romans 8, just before our section in Romans 9, for instance, that nothing, nothing can separate you from his love in Jesus Christ our Lord, neither height nor depth, angels or powers or principalities, neither life nor death or anything else in all creation. That's wonderful news, isn't it? Because God's unstoppable. And you can bank on it because nothing beats him, not even people who scheme against him. Second implication, God can soften anyone he chooses to as well as harden. Now that's wonderful news, isn't it? If you've got people you love who haven't come to Christ, they're still refusing to listen, they don't want to know, there is still hope. It's wonderful news for our increasingly complex community of people who who come from all sorts of religious backgrounds from across the world. God is the one who is in charge of human hearts. So keep praying. Keep looking for opportunities, even if you doubt your own ability as Moses did. Keep bringing them to God and and see what he may do. Third implication, God does not depend on us to save us. That's very good news, isn't it? That's really what Romans 9 is driving towards. You need the mercy of God alone to have life and salvation. It's all of God's mercy. It's not about you. It's about God. No matter who you are, you cannot impress God enough. You cannot be pure enough. You cannot sacrifice enough. You cannot prove yourself enough to him. It it throws us totally on him. Israel were not able to save themselves from the terrible slavery they were in, but God was able by his sheer mercy. We cannot save ourselves from sin and death, but God is able to by his sheer mercy through the blood of Jesus. Don't be proud like Pharaoh. Come in humble thanks to him. Which leads to the final implication, which is the ultimate reason that God does this and is like this, why why he hardens whom he wants to harden Indeed, why he hardened Pharaoh in the way he did is so that he will get all of the glory. So that my name will be known over the whole earth. He made you for his glory. He saved you for his glory. He he directs things for his glory. So, where are you giving all the glory? Whose glory are you living for? One day everyone will behold him and acknowledge him. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you know this glorious God who has made himself known? This is who he is. This is our God, the God of supreme power. Power that extends far beyond what may be comfortable for us. Who wields his power to save those who he wishes to. That's how he saved us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
and he's calling us to throw ourselves on his mercy and bathe in wonder at his power and majesty and live now in awestruck wonder of him. Let's pray, Father, these are powerful insights that you give us into who you are, your absolute control. There is none like you. Father, help us to be humble before you and not proud and to give you all the glory. You are the one who saves. You are the one who brings judgments. You are everything. This world is yours, and so may we acknowledge that and live as if it's true. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we sing, I want to give you one minute to reflect and, uh, and to work out what's one thing that you're going to take away from today. Uh, you might find it helpful to write it down, a sentence or two. You might find it necessary to look back over the outline or your notes or the passage. What's one thing? Let's not be hearers of the word only, but those who hear and do. And uh, just heads up, I'm going to ask you later in the service to share that with somebody. What's one thing that you're going to take away from today?